0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly guest dharma series.
1: So welcome again, everyone. And a big welcome to Steve Armstrong, a long time <laughs> friend and teacher. Some of you know that uh, Steve and his teaching partner and life partner, Kamala Masters, Wife. 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 Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you to <use> that word? <laughs> I've been coming to Minnesota since '94, so 16 summers. <coughs> They've been training, important teachers for many of the leaders, including myself here in. Uh, Welcome again, everyone, and big welcome to Steve Armstrong, a long time, (laughs) very friend and teacher. Some of you know that uh, Steve and his teaching partner and life partner, Kamala Masters... Wife. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. you see that word? I've been coming to Minnesota since 94. So 16 summers, <coughs> they've been training uh, important teachers for many of the leaders, including myself here in the Minnesota area, Wisconsin area, leading the nine-day summer retreat sponsored by the Twin Cities Proposite Collective. And uh, there's, uh, now we have this opportunity for Steve to be here and to teach directly. Uh, some of the teachings have been very important for him. that he learned that in the 80s when he was a monk in Burma for five years, mostly under the guidance of a famous uh, Buddhist meditation master, Sayadaw Pandita. Some of you have probably heard stories either from Steve or from other teachers. Sayadaw Pandita has uh, really made an impact on Western Dhamma, the way that it's presented here in the West and the benefits so many of us have received, maybe not directly, but indirectly from students of this that have taught. And Steve began in 1975, one of the first people to get involved with Kinsad Meditation Society in Massachusetts. Many of you have heard of this place. One of the grandfather institutions or grandmother institutions in this country. And Steve started out as a staff person, a retreating, a staff person, a board member, and now a senior teacher there for the last uh, boy, almost almost 20 years, not quite 20 years, but for a long time. And for many years taught the three-month retreat um, with a number of other teachers there. Um, and Steve and Kamala have a, a foundation or a, an organization based in Maui, the Vipassana Meta Foundation, and they've been developing over the years a hermitage sanctuary for practice uh, on the island of Maui and have led retreats there as well as internationally, Spirit Rock, IMF, Minnesota, and many, many places around, including Europe, too, I believe. So, we're hoping, Steve, this isn't the first time you come besides your summer retreat and uh, get you back here to teach, maybe right
0: in a regular
1: way. Thanks again. Thank you. Please talk tonight is meditation and healing.
0: <coughs> so, is this, is this on? Can you hear me? If I look this way, can you hear me over there? <laughs> That's always a challenge in a room like this. <laughs> um, Okay, so I'm still talking. Can anybody hear?
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay, it's working. How are your ears? They're working too? Okay, great. <laughs> um, thanks. Uh, thanks, Mark, for that. Who was it you were introducing? <laughs> when I hear all that personal history, I think, oh my God, no wonder I'm tired. <laughs> but nevertheless, that was then, that's old history. It's just a kind of a, a personal repository of things that have gone by. Uh, we're here now, and what's happening now is, uh, you know, recently I was <clears throat> asked to give a talk at the uh, Mayo Clinic, which I gave this afternoon, and they wanted to know something about Um, the mind and healing, or meditation and healing, or mindfulness and health. So, of course, to get some idea of what I'm supposed to talk about, I googled. um, (laughs) Meditation and healing, 18 million websites. So I said, oh, that's too many to look. How about just spirituality and health, 13 million web pages. So clearly there's something going on in the space between meditation and healing, or the mind and healing, or mindfulness and health, or the mind as medicine, which is really what I want to talk about tonight, the mind as medicine. Because it's quite clear for all of us, it's pretty obvious that the mind, your mind, can make you sick, or it can make you well. And so it clearly has the same effect as any other medicine, which if taken inappropriately, not so good, complications. And if taken as indicated, can be beneficial. So I want to speak about the, the mind as medicine and just how that happens. And As some of you know, I'll just be giving a brief introduction tonight and tomorrow some of you, I suppose, will be here for the day long in which we'll look at it in a little more depth. Maybe the clearest um, example and the way that many of us know of mindfulness and healing or mindfulness and health is through the mindfulness-based stress reduction program that John Kabat-Zinn designed and taught, and that many of us have heard of and have used as a way of getting a handle on the stressing uh, conditions of our life. And, as you know, that, that particular technique is nothing other than what we just did in this silent period of sitting, of just paying attention to the present moment, As best we can with a uh, non-judgmental or at least suspending our judgment of what it is we're experiencing and just trying to be relaxed about it. And just relaxing is a great uh, support for feeling good about yourself. So just taking the time, even if you didn't do anything, any particular technique would probably be helpful. But the uh, Managing of our stressful conditions in life is essential because if we operate on a stressed out level all the time, as you know, it compromises our immune system and then we're more susceptible to everything is going around and other things. <clears throat> so if we can get a, uh, uh, begin to get a handle on managing stressing conditions, then it supports our immune system and makes us just that much better able to uh, maintain health or to recover our health if and when the inevitable happens. And (coughs) And I say that because we should not somehow think that getting sick is there's something wrong with us. This is the human condition. This is a condition that all human beings, all human bodies, experience, it get sick. And to kind of personalize it, oh, there's something wrong with me that I got sick, is adding a burden, uh, an emotional burden or a self-judgmental burden that <coughs> is uh, not necessary and, and it's not true. This is the nature of the body. You got a body? Going to get sick. Guaranteed. I think. Well, let me just ask, anybody in the room, never been sick? Okay, so confirmed. (laughs) (laughs) The second thing that we want to understand is that this body is going to die. It's going to die. Time is going to run out. And it's going to run out for some of us when we're young, some of us when we're older, some of us for uh, obvious reasons and some quite surprisingly. And to live our life as if it's never going to happen is unhealthy, unhealthy. We don't live with enough care and precision and attention in our life when we think we're not going to die, or when we don't recall, when we don't keep it as a reminder of how to live more skillfully, how to live more fully, or how to appreciate the moment of life that we have now. And the Buddha spoke extensively about the human condition and the fact that we're born, we grow old, we get sick, we die. And these are uh, active practice reflections that he encouraged us all to undertake daily. Daily. To just recall, just to just to spend some time acknowledging that this is the human condition, so that when you get sick, you don't get bummed out. You say, oh, yeah, it's about time. Or, yeah, oh, of course, I knew this was gonna happen. You know, and as uh, Robin Williams has on his, engraved on his tombstone already, although he's still living, he says, I knew this would happen.
2: (laughs) I mean, hello.
0: (laughs) Okay, so. Well, within the parameters of you know eating healthy and you know acknowledging the fact that we're going to live, we're going to die, we're going to get sick and all that, what can we do to uh, support our health? Um, as I said, we're more most of us are familiar with the, the stress management or stress reduction program, which is based on mindfulness. What is mindfulness? Well, you all know that mindfulness is doing nothing constructively, right? It's like just paying attention to, well, the way things are for you right now. And you can do that by directing your attention to a chosen object, like the breath, or sound, or posture, or some some other chosen object. And the more continuously you Direct your mind to that object, or the more continuously you do that, the more collected, calm, focused the mind and the body become. Well, just relaxing the mind, relaxing the body supports letting go of stressing conditions that you're hanging on to in an unhealthful way you can choose to remain open to choiceless objects to to stay present with whatever calls your attention and while we're sitting in the room like this your attention may be called to well the content of what i'm saying it may be called to the sight that you see of others in the room it may be called to the feeling of coolness that you feel because the air conditioning is on, thank you. It may be called to some discomfort in the body because you've been sitting for you know half hour, or forty minutes. And even though the mind is called to these many different experiences, if there is an ongoing continuity to the awareness of them, the mind still becomes calm. The body becomes calm as a result of the calmness of the mind and this too supports uh, uh, releasing of stressing condition or hanging on to stressing conditions the difference between those two of a chosen object and a choiceless object is in, in a choice in a chosen object the subjective feeling of the continuity of awareness is that you feel calm. And that, in the time of that experience, engenders a sense of well being. If you think you're well, it supports being well. If you think you're sick, you're unhealthy, it supports not being healthy. Huh. Okay. So in watching or in observing the changing sensations and the changing experiences of life, the subjective feeling is not one of feeling particularly calm. But an important mm, alternative is that we begin to see, we begin to uh, expand the range of experiences that we're open to and allow ourselves to feel physical, mental, emotional, whatever it is, environmental, we allow ourselves to feel them, watch the reaction, watch the physical reaction of contraction against and towards those things which are unpleasant or surprising or startling, feeling that contraction, noticing that and releasing it, or noticing those experiences which uh, kind of are, are enlivening, let's say, enlivening to the point of, Anxiety producing in the mind and watching the mind get revved up about some things and when you notice that revved upness, also letting go of that. So it doesn't matter whether you choose an object to pay attention to and feel calm or whether you don't choose an object but notice changing objects and find yourself feeling excited and depressed and happy and sad and joyful and judgmental, it's okay. Either way, if you're paying attention, there will be letting go of an unskillful, unhealthy relationship to experience. That's the key. Letting go. So in my googling search and in my asking and inquiring uh, and just starting to pay attention to what I might speak about, I noticed that Time Magazine had a whole issue, special issue, mind-body issue in February of this year, devoted to faith and healing. Whole issue, faith and healing. Of course, there was some mumbo jumbo, hocus-pocus, woo-woo-wow-wow stuff in there, but there was also, well, that's from my perspective, sorry. (laughs) That's my judgment. But, But nevertheless, there was also (coughs) a fair amount about awareness in there. Um, I also noticed that the the scientific documentation that supports mindfulness as a therapeutic healing technique is voluminous. There is just so much now being done to study the health benefits of mindfulness that, well, it's 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 almost overwhelming. Do You know that those who have psoriasis, psoriasis, you know, the skin condition that you know is really really can be really unpleasant, unpain painful uh, skin condition. Uh, is treatable, uh, sometimes successfully, sometimes not so successfully. But when that treatment, the medical treatment, is offered. While the patient is listening to a guided mindfulness tape, the lesions heal four times faster just because they're listening to a mindfulness tape. Same medicine, same intervention, but when practicing mindfulness while receiving the treatment, the lesions take only a quarter as long to heal as if they weren't being mindful. Does your health insurance pay for mindfulness lessons? And why not? Because it's clear that awareness, mindfulness, in that case, is medicine. Not only that, but in the treatment of uh, HIV, uh, cancer, uh, depression, uh, anxiety disorder, voluminous documentation now of the benefit. Now how does that happen? All we're doing is just sitting there paying attention to what we'd have to say is symptoms. You know, when we sit and we're just feeling the breath, we're feeling the sensations in the body, we're watching the thoughts, feelings, reactions in the mind, we're just paying attention to what, well, when you get sick, what is it you notice about being sick? You notice symptoms. you notice how the body feels, how the mind feels, and if you go to a medical uh, establishment or a medical personnel, you know they may do some tests and they come out with numbers. you know the numbers are four instead of four hundred what they're supposed to be, or they're eighteen thousand to six, you know whatever it is you know you get these numbers, but what do those numbers mean? Nothing except that you feel miserable. Our direct experience, and this is important, and this is the important piece of mindfulness is Our direct experience is what we're paying attention to in mindfulness practice. We're not paying attention to what your T cell count is, or what your PSA count is, or what your heart rate is, or what your blood pressure is. Those numbers, well, they don't mean anything in the practice of mindfulness. But it's by paying attention to how you experience the symptoms of this condition called life. How you experience the conditions of this life, whether the life and the, of the body is healthy or not. That's what we're paying attention to. At one time the, the Buddha got sick. Now the Buddha was as by all reports fully enlightened being. Do fully enlightened beings get sick? <laughs> so, so if you think your meditation is going to keep you from getting sick? Wrong. Yeah, fully enlightened beings also get sick and die. So at one time the Buddha was sick. It is said that what he did was paid attention. He mindfully endured those what were called deadly and painful sensations, patiently observing and discerning with clear perception what was occurring and by doing that he put aside or it says uh, he cured himself of the disease and uh, sustained or revved up his vitality for a further 10 months until the time that he died. He would have died at that time but because of his mindful awareness he was able to put aside those symptoms And the disease itself in order to live another 10 months. Well this sounds a little bit like uh, a miracle or you know kind of like spontaneous healing or magic or something, but there are a lot of cases in the monastery where I practiced in Burma and they've been compiled into a a pamphlet or a, a book, a small book, of cases of spontaneous healing among people who have gone to the meditation center, not to heal themselves, but to practice the Dharma in order to realize nirvana, and in the process have healed themselves of significant uh, diseases. I must say though that uh, Mahasi Sayadaw, who was the founder of the meditation center where I practiced and who was Upandita's teacher, says, of those who would practice meditation for physical healing, it's not really a very noble intention. Nevertheless, it's helpful, <laughs> but if the intention is to heal oneself only, physically, there's a kind of an investment. Uh, there's some attachment to the investment that you make. And that may actually prevent the benefit of the healing or of, of the of the meditation. So we want to be a little bit careful about demanding that the Dharma perform for us. Really. You can't command it to do that. But if you're open to practicing the Dharma in order to realize Nibbana, In Burma they call this striving for the Dharma. And when they say striving for the Dharma they mean the really rigorous, vigorous continuity of attention to recognize and take note of everything that occurs moment to moment for as long as it takes. And at this particular center they let you sleep four hours a night and they expect 14 hours of formal practice a day and another six hours of informal practice. That's 20 hours of practice a day now, if you know some of these scientific tests that they're doing on the testing mindfulness, they have a you know kind of a, a six week outpatient drop in program where they show up for once a day for you know a half hour mindfulness session. So in a half hour a day, over the course of six weeks, there are demonstrable, measurable, and significant benefits from that much mindfulness. Scientific benefits. Now imagine if you, if you can get a measurable, significant benefit out of 30 minutes a day for six weeks. What's the potential benefit out of 20 hours a day for three months? Well, we don't know, do we? How are we going to find out? The only way to know is to do it and to see for ourselves. But the understanding behind uh, practice is that, through practice, through mindful awareness and the continuity of mindful awareness, we eventually develop a balanced mind. And it's significant that when, at the time of the Buddha, a monk was sick or a lay person was sick, when the Buddha would give a discourse, he would always give a discourse on, the seven factors of awakening. When the Buddha himself was sick he asked Sariputra to give him a discourse on the seven factors of awakening. The seven factors of awakening are is the discourse for bringing the mind into balance in a healing way. It's known as the Healing Sutra. What are the seven factors of awakening? How do they work? What? how does it happen that hearing a discourse can promote well-being? Well, these seven factors point to the qualities or the capacities of the mind, the attributes of the mind, which are both energizing and tranquilizing. Because we know if we get really wound up Really energized, you know, a couple of red bulls and a couple of cups of coffee along with you know, a little bit of loud music. We're amping we're overamping, you know, and that that's not that's not healthy. On the other hand, if you're into soapers and you're kinda of like kinda of, kinda of too chilled out and you're just lethargic and you don't really want to break a sweat doing anything, uh, well that's not so healthy either. The challenge for us is to find that place in the middle, that place of balance where the mind is both energized and tranquil, and the body, too, is both energized and tranquil. Sounds contradictory, doesn't it? Energized tranquility, tranquil and alert, how does that happen? Well, conceptually it's hard to imagine, but practically speaking, if you've practiced much, you've worked in that field of trying to bring the mind to that place of awareness with non-reactivity. The energizing qualities, energizing capacities, are of course energy, energy of the mind. The second is joy, which actually starts out as just being interested, interested in your life. Hello, it's your life. You know, if if you're not interested, do you think anybody else is going to be? Um, yeah, hello. <laughs> so, interest. And the third quality that's energizing the mind is called investigation of the Dharma. This means taking an interest and in looking in an investigative way at what's happening, what's occurring. Now you know what I mean if you're like if you live a life like me and I think most you look a lot of you look kind of like you'd live like I live so much of our life is so familiar and so habitual that we just live it on automatic pilot I'm not the only one am I I'm sure there's others of you that kinda have your routines down that you can do in your sleep and in fact we do sleep through much of our life we just go through the motions to get through the day, with actually at times very little awareness. Just enough awareness to know that we're fulfilling our minimal, you know, daily requirements of responsivity. That's not enough. That's you know, in this investigation of the Dharma, we have to pay much closer attention, much more refined, continuous, and precise attention to. Even the very ordinary, mundane, repetitive things that we do every day, like take a pee, brush your teeth, open the door, check your email. How many times do you how many times do you check your email every day? You know, at least once. Dozen times. (laughs) Okay. How many times are you aware? of actually the sensations of clicking the mouse or the mu- of the pad not so often that's not good enough that's not good enough if you really want to arouse the energy of the mind the energy of investiga the energy and the investigation and the interest in what is being experienced has got to be really much more there. How can we do that and not get overamped? Well, we also need to develop the tranquilizing factors of mind. The first of which is calmness. Calmness, just physical calm, mental calm. We say in the in the in the in the business, in the industry, you know, restless body, restless mind calm body, calm mind. One way is to just sit still, to just sit still. And if you sit still and pay attention, the mind will calm down. The mind will begin to calm down. And so it takes some understanding, and some willingness, some uh, valuing of stillness of body to encourage or to condition the stillness of mind that can balance or bring the highly energized mind into balance. If the highly energized mind isn't brought into balance with tranquility, we'll we'll be rushing in the mind from one thing to another, we'll be frenetic, we we'll uh, may end up in a, a place of anxiety or panic or just racing. That's not balance. And so the first of the uh, tranquilizing qualities is, is calmness. The second is called samadhi, and samadhi is sometimes called concentration or collectedness of mind. It really means the continuity of awareness. Because as the mind's capacity to be aware becomes more continuous, as we develop the continuity of our awareness, the mind, uh, I say, is collected. Now most of us find value in multitasking. Meditation and collectiveness of mind, collectedness of mind is in the other direction. It's <laughs> It's okay to, it's okay to know how to. I'm not saying you can't multitask. I'm just saying it's good to know how not to. You know, can we actually turn off the multitasker and just do one thing at a time? for a period of time as a training in collecting the mind so that the mind is not so dispersed. When the mind is multitasking, it's dispersed. It really is scattered. It isn't very collected and if it's not collected, it's not very powerful. Do you know what a powerful mind is? Do you know what the power of mind is? Well, let me just say, the power of mind is the potential power of mind is infinite. The Buddha said this is one of those incomprehensible things one of those things that you cannot think about how great it is you cannot imagine the power of a collected mind but I'll give you one example of a collected mind and it's not you know the the only example but it's just one example there was a monk who from Burma who used to come to uh, the meditation center in Massachusetts back in the uh, late 70s early 80s the name was Tongpulu Sayadar. Now, Tongpulu Sayadar is one of these monks who wandered off in a cave, you know, when he was in his mid-30s and decided to do his practice alone in a cave, sat in a cave for 16 years alone doing his practice. After which time, he realized that his teacher had died, had recently passed away. He came out of the cave, went to his teacher's monastery. Sure enough, he just passed away. Took a year out of the cave to uh, take care of the monastery, find a new abbot for the monastery, decided he'd had enough of uh, the life outside the cave, went back into the cave for another 17 years. And then he came out after 33 years in the cave, came to Massachusetts to give us some teaching. <laughs> okay, I'd done a two-week retreat by the time he came, so I was ready.
2: <laughs>
0: so, so, first time in a group interview, go into a group interview, and it's about 50 people in the room, you know, there's 50 people in a room, Here's this short, wizened little guy, wears sunglasses. I mean, he lived in a cave his whole life, so he wears sunglasses. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> you're looking around the room, and he goes, Are you a doctor? And the person that he says, points to says, Yeah, how'd you know that? And he looks around and says, You a doctor? Yeah. Yes. And how about you? you doctor? Yeah. Every time he identified, every doctor in the room. And they weren't wearing scrubs either.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: How do you do that? How do you know that? That's the power of mind. That's what a powerful mind can do. Mo- much more than that. That's just that's just a display to catch your attention. So that you listen to everything else he's got to say. <laughs> Uh, aren't you an acupuncturist? <laughs> okay, so. Uh, so we got these. Uh, I got through two tranquilizing factors. Let's see, where was I? I don't want to get lost here. Oh, the third tranquilizing factor calmness, uh, collectedness of mind, or samadhi. And the third tranquilizing factor, oh, the most important, how could I forget? Is equanimity? Equanimity is balance of mind. Most of us, ec- to, to most of us, equanimity is just a word. What is the experience of a balanced mind? A mind that is not reactive to both the pleasant and the unpleasant political comments you hear on the radio. Or, well, yeah, that, that's equanimity, you know. Eh, eh, do you know what that is? No, I don't know. I, I'm pretty reactive <laughs> to what I hear on the radio. So, um, in fact, in our culture, there's very little valuing of equanimity or the balance of mind, the non-reactivity. In fact, there's, there's a goading of, uh, of us through the popular media to, to have an imbalanced reaction to everything political, economic, things are presented to us in hype and drama and there's a dramatization of the ordinary and if we aren't aware that that's what's conditioning our mind we too will dramatize the ordinary in our life that's not equanimity equanimity is very close to boredom It's very close to contentment. It's very close to nothing special happening. Can you tolerate that? Like, God, this is so boring. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's great. (laughs) Most of us don't have that reaction, do we? If something's boring, we're looking for excitement. We want something to do. We want to make use of our time. Until we understand what equanimity is and the value of equanimity, we may not seek it, we may not recognize it if and when it happens. But it is one of the tranquilizing factors to be developed to bring the energizing factors into balance. It is mindfulness itself, the seventh of the awakening factors, that harmonizes the energizing with the tranquilizing. So that whenever some over energizing happens. Awareness recognizes it, lets it go, back to balance. Or whenever there's an over abundance of a tranquil tranquilizing factors, and we're getting a little bit over tranquilized, then there's a, uh, a recognition of that and a, and a, and a, bringing, a bringing up of the energy. It is this balance of mind, this very refined balance of mind, which allows the body to come into a non-struggling relationship with the way things are. Oh. Non-struggling relationship with the way things are. <clears throat> you know when you... Um, I'm going to head off in a different track now. <clears throat> you know when you uh, get angry? Do you still get angry? Okay, you know when you get angry or upset at somebody? What it feels like in the body? The body contracts, you feel a little tight, you clench the jaw, you clench your fist, you get a little hot, just. Those physical sensations are directly conditioned by the state of mind of anger. Right? Okay. Now you know when you fall in love? You fall in love fall last, I should say. You fall in last, and you go, wow. <laughs> Man, this person is the love of my life. This is great. Man, you're a perfect. You know, and we just feel, the body feels so light and so energized and so subtle and so pleasant. You know, those sensations are directly conditioned by that state of mind. Right? Okay. Now, what is the quality of physical material experience conditioned by a strongly equanimous imbalanced mind. Healthy. It is because of the strength of the balanced mind that the wholesome or the beneficial or the healthy physical sense the physical material of the body arises. And the stronger the equanimity, and the longer it is maintained, the healthier the body becomes. Now let's acknowledge there are genetic limitations to our health. There are environmental limitations to our health. There are uh, limitations due to the, the nutrition that we have eaten or not. But within that, the quality of the mind also plays a significant role. That's how the mind is medicine for us in our life. Is that enough?
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. Enough. So I invite you all to um, develop an equanimous mind. You yeah. know, if you can learn to tolerate boredom and contentment uh, as the uh, kind of two. Uh, close neighbors of equanimity, uh, and refine your understanding of what the difference is, uh, and really bring your mind into that energized, tranquil place, uh, you'll see for yourself the, the physical benefit of a, of a balanced mind. More details to follow tomorrow,
2: <laughs>
0: but for those of you who won't be here, uh, if there are any questions that I can answer tonight, I'd be happy to try to uh, answer or comment on whatever you have. Do you have a comment?
1: I have a question. A question. I'm wondering if
0: you have any idea how that hermit monk knew the doctors in the room with his mind. Do I have any
2: idea how the hermit doctor knew the doctors, the hermit
0: monk knew the doctors in the room with his mind? Yes. Um,
2: Yes. Would you share that
0: us? <laughs> Yes. Uh, well, my understanding of the mind as I've experienced it is that it is not limited to this body. It's not contained within the body and it's not limited to this body. And that the mind has a capacity of knowing that which is beyond the senses what is not seen, heard, smelled, taste, touched. But through the collectedness of the mind, the power of the mind, uh, you can know others' minds. That is possible. That's how. But he was doing... I mean, it sounds so easy. I mean, hello. No, he was doing a mental dissection of the body. That was his practice. Mentally dissecting the body into the, what are called the Buddhist 32 parts of the body. Just sit these 32 parts out here. You take a look at their size, shapes, metal, color, you know, whatnot, placement in the body. And he did that for 33 years. So he had an intimate understanding of the body. You know? He could identify, you know, all the, all the different colonies of little animals and bugs that live in the body. He knew them all. He was that familiar, that intimate with what's going on in the body. So I think... Uh, this is my speculation that when he looked at a doctor or when he saw someone who had that a, a level of intimacy with what's underneath the skin he recognized kin 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 you know somebody who had the, uh, similar knowledge to himself that's my speculation you could talk a little bit more about
3: the, the aspect of right attention as far as Yeah. Uh, so, in general, can be the impetus for practice and the, the beginning point. Yes. Uh, but on the other hand, you mentioned the, the limitations that can be encountered by having this some kind of goal or
0: practice. Yeah. Um, so a bit more about this. Yeah. Uh, so the comment, did you hear the comment? It's about uh, speaking about the intention of uh, having a limited intention in your practice, of like, like wanting health only, or how to have a, how to have an intention that includes both an understanding of dukkha and health, but also is not limited to that. Is that kind of the question? Yeah. Uh, the question has to arise when someone practices in such a way as to effect what appears to be a miraculous cure what actually happens and from my understanding of practice and some of what I'll talk about tomorrow it's clear that the quality of awareness and perception and understanding of those who practice successfully in that way is that they see through the illusion of themselves they see through the illusion of this is my body my mind and their resi- their Awareness is of the nature of the body and the nature of mind and just how impersonal it all really is. If at that time they were still holding on to me, my body, my disease, and I want to get rid of it, they would never see through that veil, that conceptual veil of how impersonal it all really is. And only until or only when they are able to see through that veil and just see all that's going on here is just impersonal effects of impersonal causes. Then there's a possibility of coming into balance and right understanding that would that could effect a cure on the macro level of me in my body in my disease. But to hold on to that as the intention or the goal would limit the would, would block the Understanding from piercing that veil, from penetrating that veil, that conceptual veil, and no healing possible. Bodies get sick. Bodies die. But when there's no body and there's no disease, and you're really not identified with it, you're not attached to it, then it may be possible to allow the way things are, to allow nature to have its course and to heal uh, heal the body. Possible. Yeah. Okay. What was the purpose of sleeping only four hours at Kumbh well there? I assume that wasn't arbitrary. There's was got
3: to be some
0: reason. Yeah. Well, the the question is, what's the purpose of only sleeping four hours? Uh, and uh, you assume that there's got to be some purpose. Well, the Buddha only s- took four hours a night to kind of uh, withdraw from. His teaching responsibilities. So if it's good enough for the Buddha, it's good enough for us.
2: <laughs>
0: wow! Anybody here sleep only four hours a night? Mm, hard to imagine, isn't it? You know, it's just an imagination. What you think about your need for sleep is just a thought. I tell you, it's just a thought. It's actually a misbelief. It's just an assumption. And if you really wanted to find out for yourself, the only way to know is to try it. And what I discovered is that four hours was way too much. Way too much sleep. Not necessary. Of course, I was younger then. <laughs> I was more energetic. Uh, but it's really, it's really a... Uh, an invitation to be diligent, be continuous, and not to uh, not to not to indulge in the pleasure of sleep. Yeah, because during sleep, uh, the mind is not necessarily in a wholesome state, and it can roll around in a lot of unwholesome states, and that weakens the momentum of your mindfulness. So that if you if you just sleep or just indulge in the pleasure of sleep, you've got to ramp up. You've got to ramp it all up again in the morning. And if you just sleep minimally, just drop off, just get get the minimal rest that your body needs and your mind needs, then you can come back to uh, pick up the mon- momentum quite easily. Uh, it is common common uh, in the monastery for people to come and. Uh, to go two, three, four days without sleep, no problem, no problem, no sleep, not nap, I don't mean napping, not spacing out, not nodding off while sitting, just no sleep. And one of my teachers, Uchitila, he went 15 days, 15 days, when his mind was in that place of equanimity and balance, just totally balanced, not thinking. What is it that tires us out anyway, you know? You know what tires us out? Thinking. And when the mindfulness is such that you're not thinking, but you're just being aware, you don't get tired. Wow. Hmm. Check that out.
3: <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> yeah.
3: Um, you mentioned uh,
4: psoriasis. A I, I mentioned what? you mentioned getting
0: psoriasis. Yeah, psoriasis. Yeah.
4: And I, I was curious about the, the personal experiences. The psoriasis is a condition of the body when dealing with depression, which is a condition of Online.
0: Yeah. Is it?
4: Or is it? Yeah. I mean, okay. It depression. Like, with my personal experience yeah. With depression yeah. Sitting with
0: depression is just more depression. More depression? Yeah. Let me just suggest that you might be not sitting skillfully with the depression. Okay? And, and uh, I'll tell you why. Uh, a couple of things. One is, there is documentation of relapse prevention in recurrent depressive episodes. You know, for those who've experienced two or more severe depressions, when they're in a post-depressive state, being treated with mindfulness have a... I was going to say miraculous, but it's not miraculous, it's, it's cause and condition. They have a very good response to mindfulness training preventing relapse, a third relapse documented. Well, well Post documented. Post-present. Yeah, huh? post-present. The second uh, comment about depression is, the teacher that I practice with now in Burma, Saito Utejaniya, as a lay person, suffered severe depression. The first time, the first and second time that he suffered severe depression, he muscled his way through it. He just wouldn't let himself get there, and he just, you know, Energetically overcame it to get on with life. The third time that he got caught in a severe depression, he could not do that. And the only way out was to go in. And to go into and pay attention to the m- mechanics of depression. Not the content of the depressive thoughts, but the mechanics of depression. And from that, you know, his just fascinated interest in. What is going Oh, this is the nature of depression! Wow, look at this! Not how bummed out I am because of my thoughts. And from that curiosity about the nature of depression, uh, he, well let's say, cured himself of depression. No longer suffers from it. No more recurrent depression. And you, as you know, those who have two or more severe episodes of depression are much more likely to have a third and a fourth and. The more, the more. And he is a, a testimonial to the possibility and the power of relief from that recurrent depression. He said an interesting thing about his work with depression and his, his teaching of with students who are depressed. He says there's a really interesting thing. Depressed people know their thoughts. You know your thoughts? You know your thoughts. That's what... Come the hell out of you, you know. It's like, okay. <laughs> what they don't know is that those thoughts are impersonal and not theirs. That's that's you know. There's wrong un- the awareness is there, but there's wrong understanding with that awareness. So he, in teaching people to work with their depression, teaches how to understand depression and those kinds of thoughts rightly rather than to get caught in them, identified with them wrongly, which prolongs and aggravates the depression. So I invite you to explore that a little bit. And if if you need some guidance from mutation here, let me know.
4: You indicated earlier, uh, you're feeling that the mind isn't necessarily just located in our bodies. Yeah. And of course, Western medicine inside our mind is located totally within our, our brain. And now they're coming to find that our brain, the same physical matters that are in our brain are elsewhere in our body as well. So when we have a gut feeling, it's really the thought that we're really having with the same kind of physical matter in our gut, right? And I'm wondering, do you think that um, yoga and that kind of thing is kind of a relaxing of those parts of our brain that are in our body and would have a similar reaction to mindfulness that we do in our brain?
0: Mara, you're a yoga instructor. Let me know. What do you think? <laughs> Probably. Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> but certainly, the mind and the body are not so separate as the words make them sound. That they're very, they're much more integrated than that. And as we know, there's a constant communication between the mind and the body. And in in the Buddhist teachings, the Buddha points to the conditioning relationship between the mind and the body. The body conditions the mind, the mind conditions the body. The mind conditions the mind, and the body conditions the body. And sometimes just exploring which of those conditioning relationships is at play in what you're experiencing. Really fascinating. Where is this experience coming from? Whether it's a mental or physical experience, is it coming from conditioning, being conditioned by the mind? Or being conditioned by the body. Yeah, so that can be interesting. Yeah. Hi.
2: How
3: um, can you speak to helping children access the through mindfulness? How to help
0: young children to begin that um, connection? How to help young children
3: become begin Could the connection
2: we, to,
0: to? Start
2: learning mindfulness.
0: Yeah. So Are you a mom? Be mindful. <laughs> because kids mimic parents, and to the extent that you that you actually practice mindfulness, they will begin to learn from you i don't i don't I never raised I was not in the house when the young kids were young being raised um, so I'm not speaking from experience, but I've heard my wife answer this question a lot she had four kids and you know she would do her practice and the kids would see her do her practice and of course you can't just kinda say don't bother me I'm I'm not available for the next 45 minutes I'm gonna do my practice you know kids they don't have 45 minutes so uh, she would just allow them to come invade her space but that was her practice and uh, I think the the, both the, the seeing of her practicing and of course the quality of her mind Being more aware and being less reactive was helpful. And by the time her daughter was 13, I was in the house with her. And what we did with her was to help her articulate her experience. Especially, you know, teenagers are flooded with emotions that they've never felt before. And they're all over the shop and it's it's scary to them even though they don't know it. They're just acting out their emotions rather than being aware of them. And so to help them learn to articulate what they're feeling, even though it's very difficult for them, and, and our daughter just resisted it, just hated us for having her sit down and try to talk about how she was feeling. She hated us for it, but she loved it to, in sharing it with her friends. <laughs> so you know, you know, kids. So so do it anyway. Uh, and and I think you could probably start that at an earlier age, uh, helping kids to know that they have feelings, and to to articulate them, because being able to articulate your feelings, or being able to identify them, or just to label them, scientific studies labeling your your uh, emotional experiences is just so powerful in beginning to take away the power of them over you and you you begin to tame them. Even the most scary and the most overwhelming of feelings when you put a word on it, it's just like, oh this is humiliation, oh this is shame, oh this is frustration, this is anger, whatever. It just like objectifies it in a way. It's not disconnecting from it, but it objectifies it in a way that's like, oh that can be dealt with when it's me that I'm so, whatever, hard to deal with. Okay? Yeah?
3: Um, you talked about, uh, you know, we often hear about how the culture and curriculum is to kind of be all scattered into a whole and so forth. Um, is there a problem on the other side?
0: Is there a problem with concentrating too much or not multitasking? Uh, Ask your partner. (laughs) 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 Meaning, you know, sometimes, sometimes, I've seen this. I've seen it in myself, I've seen it in others, that we... In our inability or unwillingness to engage all of life, we withdraw, and we do that by focusing on one thing, and it can be computer games or it can be meditation, but it's cutting you off from some of life that needs to be engaged with. Okay, uh, as a as a therapeutic technique, it might be it might be really useful to withdraw, uh, to recharge your batteries, to to refresh. The energy of the mind and the body, so that you can re-engage the fullness of life with the recharged batteries. So it's not counterindicated all the time, but if it's your default mechanism for dealing with things, maybe that ought to be looked at. I would say. You, you know, you know what I mean. So I wouldn't say that there's a danger in just being concentrated. Concentration is a valuable. And collecting this mind is a valuable tool to have accessible to us when needed. But if our withdrawing from the fullness of life through focusing on a single thing limits and is somehow avoiding, you know, some of the issues of life, uh, maybe maybe there's another way to, to to handle that. You know, temporarily. Okay, charge your batteries, get some withdrawal. Uh, you know, sometimes people. You know, they go off on retreat for three months, or like myself, you go off to the monastery for five years. It may look like from outside, it's like, wow, they're withdrawing from life. They're not living a fullness of life. Believe me, when you go into the monastery for five years, your mind goes with you. <laughs> You're not withdrawing from it, nothing. You know, so, so uh, just because someone is focused within or concentrated or uh, has a singularity of mind like that, doesn't mean that they're necessarily avoiding. Maybe they were doing a lot of valuable internal work. Yeah. So there's no easy answer to that one. That no one needs a little more refined looking and investigation.
5: Yeah. Hi. I'm still back with that hermit monk.
0: You're still back with the hermit monk? No, he he died in '88. He died long time ago. Sorry. And your your explanation, um, and you said
5: something about. The The mind that's collected? Yeah. Well, I think my question is how does it relate to the five aggregates? Is it it within the five aggregates, or are you talking about something outside, you know, about him knowing non dual realm, or still it happens within the aggregates?
0: Oh, it happens within the aggregates. The mind, you know, the mind, consciousness, and, and that's all. That's one of the aggregates. That's all there. <clears throat> so, n- no, it's not outside the aggregates. But the mind can know what is outside of one's physical being, can't it? I mean, there, there, there are people, you know, and this happens quite a lot in 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 certain stages of practice in the med- in the med- center where I was. That you can know events that occur in other parts of the world at the moment they're happening. How's that happen? Well, the mind is here. You know, the body's here, the mind is here, and you know what's happening in Japan. Uh, how that happen? Well, the mind, the collected mind, is very, very powerful. Does the mind go there? Uh, I'm not sure how that happens. Maybe it's radio waves or something like that. But it is possible. It does happen.
5: Yeah. It's still the aggregate.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely within the aggregates. Yes, definitely, yeah. The only thing outside the aggregates? we say, in Nibbana. You know, the aggregates are all conditioned thing, right? The only unconditioned thing is Nibbana. We still have a couple of minutes, if there's any more questions. No more questions? What are we gonna talk about tomorrow?
4: <laughs> Just curious about your experiences this morning.
0: Oh my reception at the at the mail! I I was so nervous and so intimidated by them people. (laughs) 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 They were pretty open. They're very open and very you know had a good good uh, discussion with them. Yeah. You know they have a they have a they have a program. You know this uh, they have a they're starting a program which is really fascinating. It's really very uh, complementary or integrative of uh, mindfulness and understanding the mind as a, as a medicine and health. And they put together a 90-minute uh, PowerPoint presentation that will convince anybody, you know, no, 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 no. I mean, no, not just meditators, but, you know, people right out of mainstream Central America, you know, Central America? Middle America, middle
3: America, sorry, middle America.
0: just safe.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's off? Come on back on. No <laughs> uh, and so there they are they are putting together a package of information that they are uh, making available to, to all the patients that come there and and the administration's there and I think you'll see it Spreading around over the next few years. It, it it seemed very good. Yeah, it seemed really it's got it's got a lot of credibility. It had as I listened to the presentation of the, the guy who's who's developed it and I listened to it, I, I, I couldn't help but just translate it into the language that I use, you know, and the and the, the mindfulness and the meditation parts. And most of the elements of everything that I would want to include was in there and he just put it in a non-denominational, very secular, uh, cognitive reframing uh, package for people coming out of mainstream America with their traditional beliefs in mainstream health and medicine, and opening them to the possibility of the power of the mind to address their medical condition. Fantastic. Right. Really good.
5: Does it follow in
0: no, they're not following MBSA there, but they're, they're developing a program that's akin to it, but much more than just dealing with stress. That's one. Yeah. Did you have a question? Yeah. So when you mentioned echolamine, the two voices you used were contemptuous and
5: voiced? Yeah.
0: Sometimes boredom, do you you hear the comment? Questions? It's about boredom, and she was saying that I mentioned that two close kin or things that might look like equanimity are boredom and contentment. And, you know, there are subtle differences between boredom, contentment, and equanimity that we want to distinguish. Is you're saying that sometimes boredom to you seems like it's covering up restlessness. Is that it? You know that's a good that's a good point because boredom generally we understand as being a lack of precise attention. And a lack of precise attention is kind of a dispersed, restless mind. Hey pretty good. Yeah. So But often, we don't know it. We just think, "Oh, nothing's happened. This is boring but it's not the thing that's boring. it's the mind that's disinterested. Huh? but sometimes we you know the feeling of being bored is pretty calm, it's pretty non reactive It's just boring, It's boring you know this is this is almost pleasant, you know, if it wasn't so boring <laughs> like that, but uh when we when we look more closely at the experience of boredom, meaning we're not bored but we're interested in it, it it, it doesn't hold up. There really isn't anything there. To it certainly isn't contentment, and it certainly isn't equanimity.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah.
4: Uh, there's another direction in that same realm that you're talking about that yeah. might be with the word complacency.
0: Complacency. Yeah. Complacency is in seems there too. Like a
4: place. but not
0: caring. Complacency is equanimity, but not caring. Is that I what you said?
4: I, it just came out. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. uh,
0: well, I
2: definitely,
0: I definitely agree with you that complacency is an unwholesome state of mind. Huh? There's there's a certain uh, lack of investigation there. Complacent. Well, uh, but I haven't really kind of, I haven't got a wrap down on complacency yet. But uh, I'll, I'll work on it.
2: <laughs>
0: but keep looking. <laughs> Time for one last question. Yeah. This is more of a
5: testament to what you're saying. Um, sharing of, or a plug for my unpleasantness, I guess. Because I suffered from
0: um, chronic pain for about 20 years. It's been 20, 20 years? Started. Pardon? You suffered chronic from chronic pain? pain, arthritis, oh, yeah. like 20 years. Yeah.
5: Last summer was the worst episode of pain I've ever had in the in years. my ankle so bad that I'm really I was in a wheelchair. You never had such tremendous pain in life. And I have to say that because of my influence, I, I didn't have a reaction to it. I like, didn't cry. I didn't get angry. I was just in this place of pure grace and peace. That's all you know.
0: <laughs> it works, yeah, 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 you're welcome. Uh, you know, there's been some uh, mindfulness and and uh, arthritis uh, science work done, you know, on fibromyalgia and the pain of arthritis and things like that. Some, as you say, very significant... Uh, capacity to deal with the pain, yeah. but also uh, engender uh, feelings of well-being, even though we can't say it's a cure necessarily, but certainly uh, making the best of and living a very full full life. Yeah, with, very full life. I've had yeah. years of no pain. It's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And when this came up, it was like kind of shocking. But yet, it's so easy. Yeah. So, it's great. I'm very grateful. That's a good note to end on.
2: <laughs> Perfect.
0: So thank you all for your attention, and uh, I'll see some of you tomorrow, and we'll see the rest of you another time.
1: Thanks so much, Steve. Yeah. And uh, one of those other times, be Sunday morning, Steve is going to be leading our Sunday morning practice group, 10.30 to about 11.40. Everyone's invited. It's a drop-in program, so you don't need to register. The program tomorrow is full, and there is, there is a waiting list, so uh, that isn't an option. But please join us for Sunday, and I'm not sure what Steve will talk about, but I'm sure we will have to do with our practice. <coughs> maybe he'll speak on this uh, Sunday. Did I say Sunday? Anyway, maybe he'll speak about uh, mindfulness of the mind, which is uh, one of uh, the real themes that his teacher Ketunia, teaches a lot about, and uh, probably time for some questions too. If anyone, please join us for that. If you'd like to support Steve in the center, uh, when we have a guest teacher like Steve here, we take uh, half of the money offered in the evening for that program and offer it to the teacher as a stipend or as a gift for their willingness to come and just uh, support their lives so they can continue teaching. And then the other half we use to pay for the plane ticket and to take care of the building and the center at large. So uh, most of you know that if you don't, there's a goal in the lobby, you can make the donation there. If you have any questions, you can see me or you can see Martha over here. She can answer questions about the center or about leaving a donation. There's also an intro class beginning on Tuesday night you can sign up for in the lobby. And if you'd like to just brush off your cushion for the people coming for the workshop tomorrow, you can make it easier for the volunteers who are taking care of the space. Any announcements for today? So thanks everyone for coming. Oh, I remember. There's a reception. <laughs> 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 There's some treats, and you can get to know some of the members in the in the community if you'd like, and uh, something to drink, I believe, So please join us for that. And again, thanks for coming, and thank you, Steve, so much. Yeah, thank you. Hey, did
0: you have a uh, that a lot of the time is
4: written
0: by other people's time. It's called race, culture, or something.
1: I have to come up with an introduction for it. So, oh, I, I have a copy for that. I want to come up with a copy. It. Uh, and, uh, anyway, I'll, I'll bring it. you coming to the wall? Yeah. Oh, okay. So, okay. so uh, I'll
0: bring it. Uh,
2: so we have
1: this <laughs> Minnesota area, Wisconsin area, leading the nine-day summer retreat sponsored by the Twin Cities for Costumic Collecting. And uh, there's uh, now we have this opportunity for Steve to be here to teach directly. Uh, some of the teachings have been very important for him that he learned back in the 80s when he was in Burma for five years, mostly under the guidance of a famous uh, Buddhist meditation master, Saida Pandita. Some of you have probably heard stories either from Steve or from other teachers. Saida Pandita has uh, really made an impact on Western Dhamma, the way that it's presented here in the West and the benefits so many of us have received maybe not directly but indirectly from students of this that have taught. And Steve began in 1975, one of the first people to get involved with Inside Meditation Society in Massachusetts. Many of you have heard of this place, one of the grandfather institutions or grandmother institutions in this country. And Steve started out as a staff person or retreating, a staff person, a board member, and now a senior teacher there for the last, boy, almost almost 20 years, not quite 20 years, but for a long time. And for many years taught the three month retreat um, with a number of other teachers (coughs) there. Um, And Steve and Kamala have a a foundation or an organization based in Maui, the Vipassana Method Foundation. And they've been developing over the years a hermitage sanctuary for practice uh, on the island of Maui and have led retreats there as well as internationally St. raw I. N. S. Minnesota, and many, many places around, including Europe, too. I believe. So we're hoping Steve, this isn't the first time you come besides your summer retreat, and uh, get you back here to teach, if you're a regular. Way, together. Thank you. Please talk tonight is meditation and healing.
0: <coughs> so, is this is this on? Can you hear me? If I look this way, can you hear me over there? That's always a challenge in a room like this. (laughs) Um, Okay, so I'm still talking. Can anybody hear? (laughs) Yeah. Okay, it's working. How are your ears? They're working too? Okay, great. Thanks. Uh, Thanks, Mark, for that... Who was it you were introducing? (laughs) When I hear all that personal history, I think, oh, my God, no wonder I'm tired. (laughs) But nevertheless, that was then, that's old history. It's just a kind of a a personal repository of things that have gone by. Uh, We're here now, and what's happening now is You know recently I was asked to give a talk at the Mayo Clinic which I gave this afternoon and they wanted to know something about um, the mind and healing or meditation and healing or mindfulness and health. So of course to get some idea of what I was supposed to talk about I googled. um, (laughs) Meditation and healing, 18 million websites. So I said oh, that's too many to look, how about just spirituality and health. 13 million web pages, so clearly there's something going on in the space between meditation and healing, or the mind and healing, or mindfulness and health, or the mind as medicine, which is really what I want to talk about tonight. The mind as medicine, because it's quite clear for all of us, it's pretty obvious that the mind your mind can make you sick or it can make you well and so it clearly has the same effect as any other medicine which if taken inappropriately not so good complications and if taken as indicated can be beneficial so I want to speak about the, the mind as medicine and just how that happens. And As some of you know I'll just be giving a brief introduction tonight and tomorrow some of you I suppose will be here for the day long in which we'll look at it in a little more depth. Maybe the clearest um, example and the way that many of us know of mindfulness and healing or mindfulness and health is through the mindfulness-based stress reduction program that John Kabat-Zinn designed and taught and that many of us have heard of and have used as a way of getting a handle on the stressing uh, conditions of our life. And as you know, that, that particular technique is Nothing other than what we just did in this silent period of sitting. of just paying attention to the present moment as best we can with a uh, non-judgmental or at least suspending our judgment of what it is we're experiencing and just trying to be relaxed about it. And just relaxing is a great uh, support for feeling good about yourself. So just taking the time, even if you didn't do anything any particular technique would probably be helpful, but the uh, managing of our stressful conditions in, in life is essential because if we operate on a stressed-out level all the time, as you know, it compromises our immune system, and then we're more susceptible to everything that's going around and other things. <clears throat> so, if we can get a uh, uh, begin to get a handle on managing stressing conditions, then it supports our immune system and makes us just that much better able to uh, maintain health or to recover our health if and when the inevitable happens. And And I say that because we should not somehow think that getting sick is there's something wrong with us. This is the human condition. This is a condition that all human beings, all human bodies experience They get sick. And to kind of personalize it, oh, there's something wrong with me that I got sick, is adding a burden, uh, an emotional burden, or a self-judgmental burden, <coughs> that is uh, not necessary, and, and it's not true. This is the nature of the body. You got a body? going to get sick. Guaranteed. I think. Well, let me just ask. Anybody in the room never been sick? Okay. So, confirmed.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: the second thing that we want to understand is that this body is going to die. It's going to die. Time is going to run out. And it's going to run out for some of us when we're young, and some of us when we're older, some of us for uh, obvious reasons and some quite surprisingly. And to live our life as if it's never going to happen is unhealthy. Unhealthy. We don't live with enough care and precision and attention in our life when we think we're not going to die, or when we don't recall, when we don't keep it as a reminder of how to live more. Skillfully, how to live more fully, or how to appreciate the moment of life that we have now. And the Buddha spoke extensively about the human condition and the fact that we're born, we grow old, we get sick, we die. And these are uh, active practice reflections that he encouraged us all to undertake daily. Daily. To just recall, just to just to spend some time acknowledging that this is the human condition, so that when you get sick, you don't get bummed out. You say, "Oh, yeah, it's about time," or "Yeah, oh, of course, I knew this was going to happen." You know, and as uh, Robin Williams has on his engraved on his tombstone already, although he's still living, he says, "I knew this would happen."
2: <laughs> I mean, hello.
0: <laughs> okay. So, well, within the parameters of you know eating healthy and you know acknowledging the fact that we're going to live, we're going to die, we're going to get sick and all that, what can we do to uh, support our health? Um, as I said, we're more most of us are familiar with the, the stress management or stress reduction program, which is based on mindfulness. What is mindfulness? Well, you all know that mindfulness is doing nothing constructively. Right. It's like just paying attention to well the way things are for you right now. And you can do that by directing your attention to a chosen object like the breath or sound or posture or some some other chosen object. And the more continuously you direct your mind to that object, or the more continuously you do that, the more collected, calm, focused the mind and the body become. Well, just relaxing the mind, relaxing the body supports letting go of stressing conditions that you're hanging on to in an unhealthful way. You can choose to remain open to choiceless objects. To, to stay present with whatever calls your attention and while we're sitting in the room like this your attention may be called to well the content of what I'm saying. It may be called to the sight that you see of others in the room. It may be called to the feeling of coolness that you feel because the air conditioning is on thank you it may be called to some discomfort in the body because you've been sitting for you know half hour or 40 minutes and even though the mind is called to these many different experiences if there is an ongoing continuity to the awareness of them the mind still becomes calm the body becomes calm as a result of the calmness of the mind and this too supports uh, uh, releasing of stressing conditions or hanging on to stressing conditions. The difference between those two of a chosen object and a choiceless object is in, in a choice in a chosen object, the subjective feeling of the continuity of awareness is that you feel calm. And that in the time of it, that experience. Engenders a sense of well being. If you think you're well, it supports being well. If you think you're sick, you're unhealthy, it supports not being healthy. Huh. Okay. So, in watching or in observing the changing sensations and the changing experiences of life, the subjective feeling is not one of feeling particularly calm. But an important mm, alternative is that we begin to see, we begin to uh, expand the range of experiences that we're open to and allow ourselves to feel physical, mental, emotional, whatever it is, environmental, we allow ourselves to feel them. Watch the reaction. Watch the physical reaction of contraction against and towards those things which are unpleasant or surprising or startling. Feeling that contraction, noticing that and releasing it. Or noticing those experiences which uh, kind of are, are enlivening, let's say, enlivening to the point of, anxiety producing in the mind and watching the mind get revved up about some things and when you notice that revved upness also letting go of that. So it doesn't matter whether you choose an object to pay attention to and feel calm or whether you don't choose an object but notice changing objects and find yourself feeling excited and depressed and happy and sad and joyful and judgmental. It's okay. Either way, if you're paying attention, there will be letting go of an unskillful, unhealthy relationship to experience. That's the key. Letting go. So in my googling search and in my asking and inquiring uh, and just starting to pay attention to what I might speak about, I noticed that Time Magazine had a whole Issue, special issue, mind-body issue in February of this year devoted to faith and healing. Whole issue, faith and healing. Of course, there was some mumbo-jumbo, hocus-pocus, woo-woo-wow-wow stuff in there. But there was also, well, that's from my perspective, sorry. (laughs) That's my judgment. But, But nevertheless, there was also a fair amount about awareness in there. Um I also noticed that the documenting the scientific documentation that supports mindfulness as a therapeutic healing technique is voluminous. There is just so much now being done to study the health benefits of mindfulness that well it's it's it's, it's almost overwhelming. Do you know that those who have psoriasis, psoriasis, you know, the skin condition that, you know, is really, really can be really unpleasant, unpain- painful uh, skin condition, uh, is treatable, uh, sometimes successfully, sometimes not so successfully, but when that treatment, the medical treatment, is offered, while the patient is listening to a guided mindfulness tape, the lesions heal four times faster, just because they're listening to a mindfulness tape. Same medicine, same intervention, but when practicing mindfulness while receiving the treatment, the lesions take only a quarter as long to heal as if they weren't being mindful. Does your health insurance pay for mindfulness lessons, and why not? Because it's clear that awareness, mindfulness, in that case, is medicine. Not only that, but in the treatment of uh, HIV, uh, cancer, uh, depression, uh, anxiety disorder, Voluminous documentation, now, of the benefit. Now, how does that happen? All we're doing is just sitting there paying attention to what we'd have to say is symptoms. You know, when we sit and we're just feeling the breath, we're feeling the sensations in the body, we're watching the thoughts, feelings, reactions in the mind. We're just paying attention to what, well, when you get sick, what is it you notice about being sick? You notice symptoms. you notice how the body feels, how the mind feels. and if you go to a medical uh, establishment or a medical personnel, you know they may do some tests and they come out with numbers. you know the numbers are four instead of four hundred what they're supposed to be or they're eighteen thousand to six, you know whatever it is you know you get these numbers, but what do those numbers mean? Nothing except that you feel miserable. Our direct experience and this is important, and this is the important piece of mindfulness is, Our direct experience is what we're paying attention to in mindfulness practice. We're not paying attention to what your T-cell count is, or what your PSA count is, or what your heart rate is, or what your blood pressure is. Those numbers, well, they don't mean anything in the practice of mindfulness. But it's by paying attention to how you experience the symptoms of this condition Called life, how you experience the conditions of this life, whether the life in the, of the body is healthy or not. That's what we're paying attention to. At one time the, the Buddha got sick. Now the Buddha was, as by all reports, fully enlightened being. Do fully enlightened beings get sick? <laughs> so, so if you think your meditation is going to keep you from getting sick? Wrong. Yeah, fully enlightened beings also get sick and die. So, at one time the Buddha was sick. It is said that what he did was paid attention. He mindfully endured those what were called deadly and painful sensations. Patiently observing and discerning with clear perception what was occurring and by doing that he put aside or it says uh, he cured himself of the disease and uh, sustained or revved up his vitality for a further 10 months until the time that he died. He would have died at that time but because of his mindful awareness he was able to put aside Those symptoms and the disease itself, in order to live another 10 months. Well, this sounds a little bit like uh, a miracle or, you know, kind of like spontaneous healing or magic or something. But there are a lot of cases in the monastery where I practiced in Burma. And they've been compiled into a a, a pamphlet or a a book, a small book, of cases of spontaneous healing among people who have gone to the meditation center, not to heal themselves, but to practice the Dharma in order to realize nirvana, and in the process have healed themselves of significant uh, diseases. I must say, though, that uh, Mahasi Sayadar, who was the founder of the meditation center where I practiced, and who was Upandita's teacher, says, of those who would practice meditation for physical healing, it's not really a very noble intention. Nevertheless, it's helpful, (laughs) but if the intention is to heal oneself only, physically, there's a kind of an investment. Uh, There's some attachment to the investment that you make, and that may actually prevent the benefit of the healing or of the the meditation. So we want to be a little bit careful about demanding that the Dharma perform for us. Really, you can't command it to do that. But if you're open to practicing the Dharma in order to realize Nibbana, In Burma they call this striving for the Dharma. And when they say striving for the Dharma they mean the really rigorous, vigorous continuity of attention to recognize and take note of everything that occurs moment to moment for as long as it takes. And at this particular center they let you sleep four hours a night and they expect 14 hours of formal practice a day and another six hours of informal practice. That's 20 hours of practice a day Now, if you know some of these scientific tests that they're doing on the testing mindfulness, they have a you know kind of a a six-week outpatient drop-in program where they show up for once a day for you know a half-hour mindfulness session. So, in a half-hour a day, over the course of six weeks, there are demonstrable, measurable, and significant benefits from that much mindfulness. Scientific benefit. Now imagine if you, if you can get a measurable, significant benefit out of 30 minutes a day for six weeks. What's the potential benefit out of 20 hours a day for three months? Well, we don't know, do we? How are we going to find out? The only way to know is to do it and to see for ourselves. But the understanding behind uh, practice is that through practice, through mindful awareness and the continuity of mindful awareness, we eventually develop a balanced mind. And it's significant that when, at the time of the Buddha, a monk was sick or a lay person was sick, when the Buddha would give a discourse, he would always give a discourse on... The Seven Factors of Awakening. When the Buddha himself was sick, he asked Sariputra to give him a discourse on the Seven Factors of Awakening. The Seven Factors of Awakening are, is the discourse for bringing the mind into balance in a healing way. It's known as the Healing Sutra. What are the Seven Factors of Awakening? How do they work? What How does it happen that hearing a discourse can promote well-being? Well, these seven factors point to the qualities or the capacities of the mind, the attributes of the mind, which are both energizing and tranquilizing. Because we know if we get really wound up, really energized you know a couple of red bulls and a couple of cups of coffee along with you know a little bit of loud music we're amping we're overamping you know and that that's not that's not healthy on the other hand if you're into soapers and you are kind of like kind of, kind of too chilled out and you're just lethargic and you don't really want to break a sweat doing anything uh, well that's not so healthy either The challenge for us is to find that place in the middle, that place of balance where the mind is both energized and tranquil, and the body, too, is both energized and tranquil. Sounds contradictory, doesn't it? Energized tranquility, tranquil and alert, how does that happen? Well, conceptually it's hard to imagine, but practically speaking, if you've practiced much, you've worked in that field of, of trying to bring the mind to that place of awareness with non-reactivity. The energizing qualities, the energizing capacities, are of course energy, energy of the mind. The second is joy, which actually starts out as just being interested, interested in your life. Hello, it's your life. You know, if if you're not interested, do you think anybody else is gonna be? Um, yeah, hello. <laughs> so, interest. And the third quality that's energizing the mind is called investigation of the Dharma. This means taking an interest and in looking in an investigative way at what's happening, what's occurring. Now you know what? I mean, if you're like if you live a life like me and I think most you look, a lot of you look kind of like you'd live like I live. So much of our life is so familiar and so habitual that we just live it on automatic pilot. I'm not the only one, am I? I'm sure there's others of you that kind of have your routines down that you can do in your sleep. And in fact, we do sleep through much of our life. We just go through the motions to get through the day with actually, at times, very little awareness, just enough awareness to know that we're fulfilling our minimal, you know daily requirements of responsivity. That's not enough.'t? You know, in this investigation of the Dharma, we have to pay much closer attention, much more refined, continuous and precise attention to. Even the very ordinary, mundane, repetitive things that we do every day, like take a pee, brush your teeth, open the door, check your email. How many times do you? How many times do you check your email every day? You know, at least once. A dozen times. <laughs> okay. How many times are you aware? Of actually the sensations of clicking the mouse or the the pad. Not so often. That's not good enough. That's not good enough. If you really want to arouse the energy of the mind, the energy of investig the energy and the investigation and the interest in what is being experienced has got to be really much more. Up there. How can we do that and not get overamped? Well, we also need to develop the tranquilizing factors of mind. The first of which is calmness. Calmness, just physical calm, mental calm. We say in the in the in the in the business, in the industry, you know, restless body, restless mind body, calm mind. One way is to just sit still, to just sit still. And if you sit still and pay attention, the mind will calm down. The mind will begin to calm down. And so it takes some understanding and some willingness, some uh, valuing of stillness of body to encourage or to condition the stillness of mind that can balance or bring the highly energized mind into balance. If the highly energized mind isn't brought into balance with tranquility, we'll, we'll be rushing in the mind from one thing to another, we'll be frenetic, we we'll uh, may end up in a, a place of anxiety or panic or just racing. That's not balance. And so the first of the uh, tranquilizing qualities is, is calmness. The second is called samadhi. And samadhi is sometimes called concentration or collectedness of mind. It really means the continuity of awareness. Because as the mind's capacity to be aware becomes more continuous, as we develop the continuity of our awareness, the mind, uh, I say, is collected. Now most of us find value in multitasking. Meditation and collectiveness of mind, collectiveness of mind, is in the other direction. It's <laughs> it's okay to it's okay to know how to. I'm not saying you can't multitask. I'm just saying it's good to know how not to. You know, can we actually turn off the multitasker and just do one thing at a time? a period of time as a training in collecting the mind so that the mind is not so dispersed. When the mind is multitasking, it's dispersed. It really is scattered. It isn't very collected and if it's not collected, it's not very powerful. Do you know what a powerful mind is? Do you know what the power of mind is? Well, let me just say, it. the power of mind is, the potential power of mind is infinite. The Buddha said this is one of those Incomprehensible things. One of those things that you cannot think about how great it is. You cannot imagine the power of a collected mind. But I'll give you one example of a collected mind. And it's not the the only example, but it's just one example. There was a monk from Burma who used to come to uh, the Meditation Center in Massachusetts back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. The name was Tong Pulu Now, Tong Pulu is one of these monks who wandered off in a cave, you know, when he was in his mid 30s and decided to do his practice alone in a cave. Set in the cave for 16 years alone doing his practice. After which time, he realized that his teacher had died, had recently passed away. He came out of the cave, went to his teacher's monastery. Sure enough, he just passed away. Took a year out of the cave to uh, take care of the monastery, find a new abbot for the monastery decided he'd had enough of uh, the life outside the cave, went back into the cave for another 17 years.
2: And
0: then he came out, after 33 years in the cave, came to Massachusetts to give us some teaching. <laughs> okay, I'd done a two-week retreat by the time he came, so I was ready. <laughs> so, so, first time in a group interview, Go into a group interview, and it's about 50 people in the room, you know, there's 50 people in the room here's this short, wizened little guy wears sunglasses I mean he lived in a cave his whole life so he wears sunglasses <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> you know, you're looking around the room and he goes are you a doctor? and the person that he says points to says yeah, how'd you know that? and he looks around and says you a doctor? yeah yes. how about you? You doctor? Yeah. Every time he identified every doctor in the room, and they weren't wearing scrubs either. (laughs) How do you do that? How do you know that? That's the power of mind. That's what a powerful mind can do. Much more than that. That's just just a display to catch your attention so that you listen to everything else he's got to say. (laughs) Uh, aren't you an acupuncturist? (laughs) okay so uh, so we got these uh, I got through two tranquilizing factors let's see where was I I don't want to get lost here oh the third tranquilizing factor calmness uh, collectedness of mind or samadhi and the third tranquilizing factor oh the most important how could I forget Is equanimity? Equanimity is balance of mind. Most of us, to to most of us, equanimity is just a word. What is the experience of a balanced mind? A mind that is not reactive to both the pleasant and the unpleasant political comments you hear on the radio. Well, yeah, that's equanimity, you know. do you know what that is? No, I don't know. I'm pretty reactive <laughs> when I hear on the radio. So, um, in fact, in our culture, there's very little valuing of equanimity or the balance of mind, the non-reactivity. In fact, there's, there's a goading of, uh, of us through the popular media to, to have an imbalanced reaction to everything political, economic, it, it things are presented to us in hype and drama and there's a dramatization of the ordinary and if we aren't aware that that's what's conditioning our mind, we too will dramatize the ordinary in our life. That's not equanimity. Equanimity is very close to boredom. It's very close to contentment. It's very close to nothing special happening. Can you tolerate that? Like, God, this is so boring. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's great. (laughs) Most of us don't have that reaction, do we? If something's boring, we're looking for excitement. We want something to do. We want to make use of our time. Until we understand what equanimity is and the value of equanimity, we may not seek it, we may not recognize it if and when it happens. But it is one of the tranquilizing factors to be developed to bring the energizing factors into balance. It is mindfulness itself, the seventh of the awakening factors, that harmonizes the energizing with the tranquilizing. So that whenever some over energizing happens. Awareness recognizes it, lets it go, back to balance. Or whenever there's an overabundance of a tranquil tranquilizing factors, and we're getting a little bit over tranquilized, then there's a, a recognition of that and a, and a, and a, bringing, a bringing up of the energy it is this balance of mind, this very refined balance of mind, which allows the body to come into a non-struggling relationship with the way things are. Oh. Non-struggling relationship with the way things are. <clears throat> you know when you... Um, I'm going to head off in a different track now. <clears throat> you know when you uh, get angry? Do you still get angry? Okay. You know when you get angry or upset at somebody? what it feels like in the body. <clears throat> body contracts, you feel a little tight, you clench the jaw, you clench your fist, you get a little hot, just whew. Those physical sensations are directly conditioned by the state of mind of anger. Right? Okay. Now, you know when you fall in love, you fall in love, fall in lust, I should say. You fall in lust, and you go, wow. <laughs> Man, this person is the love of my life. This is great. Man, you're a perfect. You know, and we just feel the body feels so light and so energized and so subtle and so pleasant. You know, those sensations are directly conditioned by that state of mind. Right? Okay. Now, what is the quality of physical material experience conditioned by? a strongly equanimous and balanced mind healthy it is because of the strength of the balanced mind that the wholesome or the beneficial or the healthy physical sense the physical material of the body arises and the stronger the equanimity and the longer it is maintained the healthier the body becomes. Now let's acknowledge there are genetic limitations to our health. There are environmental limitations to our health. There are uh, limitations due to the, the nutrition that we have eaten or not. But within that, the quality of the mind also plays a significant role. And That's how the mind is medicine for us in our lives. Is that enough?
2: <laughs> yeah?
0: Okay, enough. So, I invite you all to um, develop an equanimous mind. You know? If you can learn to tolerate boredom and contentment uh, as uh, kind of two close neighbors, of equanimity, uh, and refine your understanding of what the difference is, uh, and really bring your mind into that energized, tranquil place, uh, you'll see for yourself the the physical benefit of a a balanced mind. More details to follow tomorrow, (laughs) but for those of you who won't be here, uh, if there are any questions that I can answer tonight, I'd be happy to try to Answer or comment on whatever you have. Do you have a comment? I have
1: a question. A question. I'm wondering if you have any idea how that hermit monk knew the doctors in the room with his
0: mind. Do do I have any idea how the hermit doctor knew the doctors, the hermit monk knew the doctors in the room with his mind? Yes. Um, Yes. (laughs) Yes, Uh, well my understanding of the mind as I experienced it is that it is not limited to this body. It's not contained within the body and it's not limited to this body and that the mind has capacity of knowing that which is beyond the senses. What is not seen, heard, smelled, tasted, touched. But through the collectedness of the mind, the power of the mind, uh, you can know others' minds. That is possible. That's how. But he was doing... I mean, it sounds so easy. I mean, hello. No. He was doing a mental dissection of the body. That was his practice. Mentally dissecting the body into the, what are called the Buddhist 32 parts of the body. Just set these 32 parts out here. You take a look at their size, shapes, metal color, you know, what not, placement in the body. And he did that for 33 years. So he had an intimate understanding of the body. You know? He could identify, you know, all the, all the different colonies of little animals and bugs that live in the body. He knew them all. He was that familiar, that intimate with what's going on in the body. So I think, uh, this is my speculation, that when he looked at a doctor or when he saw someone who had that a level of intimacy with what's underneath the skin, he recognized, kin, kin, kin. You know, somebody who had a similar knowledge to himself. That's my speculation. You could you talk
3: a little bit more about the, the aspect of right intention as far as um, seeking health or well-being? Yeah. Uh, so. Yes. Uh, but on the other hand, you mentioned the, the limitations that can be encountered
0: by having this some kind of goal or practice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so the comment—did you hear the comment? It's about uh, speaking about the intention of uh, having a limited intention in your practice, like wanting health only, or how to have a, how to have an intention that includes both an understanding of dukkha and health, but also is not limited to that. Is that kind of the question? Yeah. Uh, The question has to arise when someone practices in such a way as to effect what appears to be a miraculous cure. What actually happens? And from my understanding of practice and some of what I'll talk about tomorrow, It's clear that the quality of awareness and perception and understanding of those who practice successfully in that way is that they see through the illusion of themselves. They see through the illusion of this is my body, my mind. And their their awareness is of the nature of the body and the nature of mind and just how impersonal it all really is. If at that time they were still holding on to me, my body, my disease, and I want to get rid of it, they would never see through that veil, that conceptual veil of how impersonal it all really is. And only until or only when they are able to see through that veil and just see all that's going on here is just impersonal effects of impersonal causes then there's a possibility of coming into balance and right understanding that, would, that could effect a cure on the macro level of me in my body, in my disease. But to hold on to that as the intention or the goal would limit, the would, would block the understanding from piercing that veil, from penetrating that veil, that conceptual veil. And no healing possible. Bodies get sick, bodies die, but when there's no body and there's no disease, and you're really not identified with it, you're not attached to it, then it may be possible to allow the way things are, to allow nature to have its course, and to heal, heal, heal the, uh, heal the body. Possible. Yeah. Okay. yeah well, the the question is, what's the purpose of only sleeping four hours uh, and uh, you assume that there's got to be some purpose? Well, the Buddha only s- took four hours a night to kind of uh, withdraw from his teaching responsibilities. So if it's good enough for the Buddha, It's good enough for us.
2: <laughs>
0: wow. Anybody here sleep only four hours a night? Mm, hard to imagine, isn't it? You know, it's just an imagination. What you think about your need for sleep is just a thought. I'll tell you, it's just a thought. It's actually a misbelief. It's just an assumption. And if you really wanted to find out for yourself, the only way to know is to try it. And... What I discovered is that four hours was way too much, way too much sleep. Not necessary. Of course, I was younger then; <laughs> I was more energetic. Uh, but it's really, it's really a uh, an invitation to be diligent, be continuous, and not to uh, not to. Not to indulge in the pleasure of sleep, yeah, because during sleep, uh, the mind is not necessarily in a wholesome state, and it can roll around in a lot of unwholesome states, and that weakens the momentum of your mindfulness. So that if you if you just sleep or just indulge in the pleasure of sleep, you've got to ramp up. You've got to ramp it all up again in the morning, and if you just sleep minimally, just drop off, just get get the minimal rest that your body needs, and your mind needs, then you can come back to uh, pick up the momentum quite easily. Uh, It is common, common uh, in the monastery for people to come and uh, to go two, three, four days without sleep. No problem. No problem. No sleep. Not nap. I don't mean napping, not spacing out, not nodding off while sitting, just no sleep. And one of my teachers, Uchatila, he went fifteen days. Fifteen days. When his mind was in that place of equanimity and balance. Just totally balanced, not thinking. What is it that tires us out anyway? You know? You know what tires us out? Thinking. And when the mindfulness is such that you're not thinking, but you're just being aware, you don't get tired. Wow. Hmm, check that out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah? Um, you mentioned
2: uh, psoriasis. There's a, I, I mentioned what?
0: You mentioned psoriasis. Yeah,
3: psoriasis. Yeah. And
0: I, I was curious about the, the personal
3: experiences.
4: Of psoriasis is a condition of the body, when given
0: something like depression, which is a condition
4: of the body. Yeah. Is it? Or is it? Yeah, I mean, okay. It depression. Like, with my personal experience with yeah. depression, yeah. sitting with depression is just... More depression.
0: More depression. Let me just suggest that you might be not sitting skillfully with the depression. Okay? And and, uh, I'll tell you why. Uh, A couple of things. One is there is documentation of relapse prevention in recurrent depressive episodes. You know, for those who have experienced two or more severe depressions, when they're in a post-depressive state, being treated with mindfulness have a mir- mir- I was going to say miraculous, but it's not miraculous. It's it's cause and condition. They have a very good response to mindfulness training, preventing relapse, a third relapse, okay. documented. Well, well post documented, present. huh? Post-depressive. Yeah, post present. The second uh, comment about depression is. The teacher that I practice with now in Burma, Saito Utejiniya, as a layperson, suffered severe depression. The first time, the first and second time that he suffered severe depression, he muscled his way through it. He just wouldn't let himself get there. And he just, you know, energetically overcame it to get on with life. The third time that he got caught in a severe depression, he could not do that. And the only way out was to go in. And to go into and pay attention to the mechanics of depression. Not the content of the depressive thoughts, but the mechanics of depression. And from that, you know, his just fascinated interest in what is going, oh, this is the nature of depression, wow, look at this, not how bummed out I am because of my thoughts. and from that curiosity about the nature of depression uh, he, well let's say, cured himself of depression. No longer suffers from it. No more recurrent depression. And as you know those who have two or more severe episodes of depression are much more likely to have a third and a fourth. and The more the more. And he is a, a testimonial to the possibility and the power of relief from that recurrent depression. He said an interesting thing about his work with depression and his, his teaching of with students who are depressed. He says there's a really interesting thing. Depressed people know their thoughts. You know your thoughts? You know your thoughts. That's what's bumming the hell out of you, you know it's like okay. <laughs> what they don't know is that those thoughts are impersonal and not theirs. That's the, that's you know there's wrong un- and yeah. the awareness is there, but there's wrong understanding with that awareness. So he, in teaching people to work with their depression, teaches how to understand depression and those kinds of thoughts, rightly, yeah. rather than to get caught in them, identified with them wrongly, which prolongs and aggravates the depression. So I invite you to explore that a little bit. And if, if you need some guidance from Mutation, yeah, let me know.
4: You indicated earlier uh, you're feeling that the mind isn't necessarily just located in our bodies. Yeah. And of course, Western medicine inside our mind is located totally within our, our brain. And now they're coming to find that our brain, or that the same physical matters that are in our brain are elsewhere in our body as well. So we have a gut feeling, it's really the thought that we're really having with the same kind of physical matter in our gut, right? And I'm wondering, do you think that um, yoga and that kind of thing is kind of a relaxing of those parts of our brain that are in our body and we have a similar reaction to mindfulness that we do in our brain?
0: Mara, you're a yoga instructor. <laughs> Let me know. What do you think? <laughs> Probably. Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> but certainly, the mind and the body are not so separate as the words make them sound. That they're, very, they're much more integrated than that. And as we know, there's a constant communication between the mind and the body. And in, in the Buddhist teachings, the Buddha points to the conditioning relationship between the mind and the body. The body conditions the mind, the mind conditions the body. The mind conditions the mind and the body conditions the body. And sometimes just exploring which of those conditioning relationships is at play in what you're experiencing, really fascinating. Where is this experience coming from? Whether it's a mental or physical experience, is it coming from conditioning, being conditioned by the mind or being conditioned by the body? Yeah, so that can be interesting. Yeah.
3: Hi. Um, can you speak to helping children access living through mindfulness? How to
5: help young children to
0: begin that uh, connection? How to help young children become, begin to the connection we, to, to? Start
2: learning mindfulness. Yeah.
0: So Are you a mom? Yeah. Be mindful. <laughs> 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 because kids mimic parents. And to the extent that you that you actually practice mindfulness, they will begin to learn from you. I don't. I don't. I never raised. I was not in the house when the young kids were young, being raised. Um, so I'm not speaking from experience. But I've heard my wife answer this question a lot. She had four kids, and you know she would do her practice, and the kids would see her do her practice, and of course you can't. Just kind of say, "Don't bother me. I'm, I'm not available for the next 45 minutes. I'm going to do my practice." You know, kids, they don't have 45 minutes, so uh, she would just allow them to come invade her space. But that was her practice, <clears throat> and uh, I think the, the both the the seeing of her practicing, and of course the quality of her mind being more aware and being less reactive was helpful, and By the time her daughter was 13, I was in the house with her. And what we did with her was to help her articulate her experience. Especially, you know, teenagers are flooded with emotions that they've never felt before. And they're all over the shop. And it's it's scary to them, even though they don't know it. They're just acting out their emotions rather than being aware of them. And so to help them learn to articulate what they're feeling even though is very difficult for them and and our daughter just resisted it just hated us for having her sit down and try to talk about how she was feeling she hated us for it but she loved it to, in sharing it with her friends so, you, know, you know kids so so do it anyway uh, and and I think you could probably start that at an earlier age uh, helping kids to know that they have feelings and to, to articulate them because being able to articulate your feelings or being able to identify them or just to label them. Scientific studies, labeling your, your uh, emotional experiences is just so powerful in beginning to take away the power of them over you and you, you begin to tame them. Even the most scary and the most overwhelming of feelings, when you put a word on it, it's just like, oh, this is humiliation. Oh, this is shame. Oh, this is frustration. This is anger, whatever. It just like objectifies it in a way. It's not disconnecting from it, but it objectifies it in a way that's like, oh, that can be dealt with. When it's me that I'm so whatever, hard to deal with. Okay.
3: Yeah. You talk about, lot, we often hear about how our culture and career is to kind of be all scattered into a multitask and so forth. Is there a problem on the other side focusing too much or too?
0: Is there a problem with concentrating too much or not multitasking? Uh, Ask your partner. (laughs) 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 Meaning, you know, sometimes, sometimes, I've seen this. I've seen it in myself, I've seen it in others, that we, in our inability or unwillingness to engage all of life, we withdraw, and we do that by focusing on one thing. And it can be computer games. Or it can be meditation, but it's cutting you off from some of life that needs to be engaged with. Okay, uh, as a as a therapeutic technique, it might be it might be really useful to withdraw, uh, to recharge your batteries, to to refresh the energy of the mind and the body, so that you can re-engage the fullness of life with the recharge batteries. So it's not counter-indicated all the time, but if it's your default mechanism for dealing with things, maybe that ought to be looked at, I would say. You you know know what I mean? So I wouldn't say that there's a danger in just being concentrated. Concentration is a valuable, and collectiveness of mind is a valuable tool to have accessible to us when needed. But if our... Withdrawing from the fullness of life through focusing on a single thing limits and is somehow avoiding, you know, some of the issues of life. Uh, Maybe, maybe there's another way to to handle that. You know, temporarily, okay, charge your batteries, get some withdrawal. Uh, You know, sometimes people, you know, they go off on retreat for three months, or like myself, you go off to the monastery for five years. It may look like from outside, it's like, wow, they're withdrawing from life, they're not living a fullest life. Believe me, when you go into the monastery for five years, your mind goes with you. <laughs> You're not withdrawing from it, nothing. You know? So, so uh, just because someone is focused within or concentrated or uh, has a singularity of mind like that, doesn't mean that they're necessarily avoiding, maybe they're doing a lot of valuable internal work. So there's no easy answer to that one. That one needs a little more refined looking and investigation. Yeah. Thank you. I'm still
5: back with that hermit monk.
0: You're still back with the hermit monk? <laughs> no, he he died in '88. He died a long time ago. Sorry. And your your explanation.
5: Um, and you said something about uh, the mind that's collective. Yeah. Well, I think my question is. How does it relate to the five aggregates, is it, is it within the five aggregates, or are you talking about something outside, you know, right. about him knowing, non-dual realm, or still it happens within the
0: aggregates? Oh, it happens within the aggregates, the mind, you know, the mind consciousness, yeah. and, and that's all, that's one of the aggregates, that's all there. <clears throat> so, n- no, it's not outside the aggregates. But the mind can know what is outside of one's physical being, can't it? I mean, there, there there are people, you know, and this happens quite a lot in 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 certain stages of practice in the in the center where I was. That you can know events that occur in other parts of the world at the moment they're happening. How's that happen? Well, the mind is here, you know, the body's here, the mind is here, and you know what's happening in Japan. How does that happen? Well, the mind, the collected mind is very, very powerful. Does the mind go there? Uh, I'm not sure how that happens. Maybe it's radio waves or something like that. But it is possible. It does happen.
5: Yeah. It's still the
0: aggregates. Oh, yeah. Definitely within the aggregates. Yes, definitely. Yeah. The only thing outside the aggregates, we say, is Nibbana. You know, the aggregates are all conditioned thing, right? Yeah. The only unconditioned thing is Nibbana. Still have a couple of minutes. If there's any more questions, yeah. No more questions? What are we going to talk about tomorrow? <laughs> Just curious about your
2: experiences this morning. Uh, what sort of reception
0: you got? What oh, my reception at the at the mail. I was so nervous and so intimidated by them people. Uh, <laughs> they were pretty open. They're very open and very you know had a good. Good uh, discussion with them. Yeah, you know they have a, they have a they have a program. You know this uh, they have a they're starting a program which is really fascinating. It's really very uh, complementary or integrative of uh, the mindfulness and understanding the mind as a as a medicine and health. And they put together a 90-minute uh, PowerPoint presentation that will convince anybody. You know, no, 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 no. I mean, no, not just meditators, but, you know, people right out of mainstream Central America, you know, Central America? Middle America. Middle America, sorry.
3: Middle America.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Is this safe?
0: It's off. Come on, back on. Come no on. <laughs> uh, and so they they are they are putting together a package of information that they are uh, making available to to all the patients that come there and and the administrations there and I think you'll see it spreading around over the next few years. It it, it seemed very good. Yeah, it seemed really. It's got, it's got a lot of credibility. It had, as I listened to the presentation of the guy who's who's developed it, and I listened to it, I I, I couldn't help but just translate it into the language that I use, you know, in the in the the mindfulness and the meditation parts. And most of the elements of everything that I would want to include was in there, and he just put it in a non-denominational, very secular, uh, cognitive reframing. Uh, package for people coming out of mainstream America with their traditional beliefs in mainstream health and medicine and opening them to the possibility of the power of the mind to address their medical condition. Fantastic. Really good.
5: Does it follow MBSR or?
0: no they're not following MBSR there but they're they're developing a program that's akin to it, but much more than just dealing with stress. Did you have a question? Yeah. So when you mentioned actually
5: really two words that you use, contemptive and void. Yeah. And I got the contemptive part, but I kind of do a lot of boredom in my practice, but for me boredom seems to be actually a cover for restlessness and education. I was wondering if there's another way to look at boredom.
0: Sometimes boredom, uh, do you hear the comment, questions? It's about boredom, and she was saying that I mentioned that two close kin or things that might look like equanimity are boredom and contentment. And you know there's, there are subtle differences between boredom, contentment, and equanimity that we want to distinguish. And she was saying that sometimes boredom to you seems like it's covering up restlessness. Is that it? You know that's a good that's a good point, because boredom generally we understand as being a lack of precise attention. And a lack of precise attention is kind of a dispersed, restless mind. Hey, pretty good. yeah, so but often we don't know it. We just think, oh, nothing's happened. This is boring. that it's not the thing that's boring. It's the mind that's disinterested. Huh? But sometimes we, you know, the feeling of being bored is pretty calm. It's pretty non-reactive. It's just boring. It's boring. You know, this is this is almost pleasant. You know, if it wasn't so boring. <laughs> <laughs> like that. But uh, when we when we look more closely at the experience of boredom, meaning we're not bored but we're interested in it, 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 it doesn't hold up. There really isn't anything there to, it certainly isn't contentment and it certainly isn't equanimity. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Uh, there's another direction in that same realm that are talking about that yeah. might be with the word complacency.
0: Complacency? Yeah, complacency is in there too. like
4: a place not to go or not to get stuck because it's equanimity but not caring.
0: Complacency. Is equanimity, but not caring. Is that what no. you said? It just
2: came out. I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I definitely, I definitely agree with you. That complacency is an unwholesome state of mind. Huh? There's, there's a certain uh, lack of investigation there. There's complacent. Well, uh, but I haven't really kind of, I haven't got a wrap down on complacency yet. But uh, I'll, I'll work on it.
2: <laughs> but
0: keep looking. Time for one last question. Yeah. Um, This is more of a testament to what you're saying. Um, Sharing of, or a plug for mindfulness, I guess. Because I've suffered from um, chronic pain for about 20 years. 20 20 years? Pardon? you suffered from chronic chronic
5: pain, arthritis for about 20 years. And I've
0: been practicing mindfulness for about
5: 15. And this last summer. My ankle so bad that I'm really I was in a wheelchair. I never had such tremendous pain And I have to say that because of my influence, I, I didn't have a reaction to it. I like, didn't cry, I didn't get angry. I was just in this place of pure grace and peace. That's all in all the <laughs> So I can say that all of you were
0: because it really um, It works yeah 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 you're welcome Uh, you know there's been some uh, mindfulness and and uh, arthritis uh, science work done you know on fibromyalgia and the pain of arthritis and things like that some as you say very significant uh, capacity to deal with the pain but also uh, engender uh, feelings of well-being even though we can't say it's a cure necessarily but certainly uh, making the best of, and living a very full, full life. I a very full life,
2: and
0: I've yeah. had years of nothing, I'm
2: yeah. wonderful, yeah. Really. Yeah. and when this came out, it was like, kind of shocking, but then I just, it was so easy, yeah. so it's great. I'm very grateful. That's a good note to end on. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: So thank you all for your attention, and uh, I'll see some of you tomorrow, and we'll see you the- Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.